Hello, I'm Charlie Pickles and I'm Managing Editor of Unheard. Today, I have the pleasure of filling in for Aisha Hazarika. This is the weekly Unheard podcast and for listeners who are familiar with our format, you will know that we go through different underreported stories and also we talk about our villains and heroes of the week. And that's because at Unheard, we like to shine a light on those things which we don't feel are being discussed enough. So, our guests today are Peter Franklin, who is an associate editor at unheard.com, and I'm sure you'll all be aware, writes our fantastic daily unpacked column. And I'm also thrilled to be joined by Julie Bindle, who is a journalist, author, broadcaster and feminist campaigner against sexual violence. So to begin, Peter, can I ask you to introduce your underreported story? Well, um, it's from China, specifically um, the city of Nanchang, which is in Jiangxi province in the southeast of the country. And it's this remarkable story of, um, well, maybe, you know, someone getting arrested is perhaps not a remarkable story. But the thing is, the police waded into a concert a stadium full of 60,000 people and just yanked this guy out uh, who was amazed that the police had managed to track him down um, in the midst of such a huge crowd. But the reason why they were able to do it was facial recognition technology in which China is emerging as a global leader. And this story just um, makes it clear just how powerful the technology is now. Okay, so this is a guy who's gone to a concert, probably thought he was fairly anonymous at that concert, and yet the police have been able to manage to just identify him and and arrest him just off of the back of what effectively an algorithm is telling them. So, I mean, mean, that seems to have quite far-reaching implications. It does, because what we're looking at is the end of anonymity, Um, Our culture has gone through um, a relatively short phase, actually. Um, I suppose it it began with the beginning of sort of mass urbanisation, which people were out of the villages where everyone knows everyone's business, into these huge growing cities where you're just uh, a nameless face in, in the throng. Now... That's drawing to an end because those nameless faces can now be picked out uh, by the powers of um, computing and identified no matter where they go, no matter how many people they lose themselves in. So, you know, that sort of element of privacy, in some ways a, a kind of form of loneliness, that's coming to an end. And I think that's quite an important juncture in 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 the in our story but but why would you why would you want to afford privacy to criminals so so this guy was a criminal he'd been identified as a criminal presumably if he's been arrested and the technology enabled the police force to do their job to serve justice what is the issue here well um there are civil liberties issues um and perhaps we'll come on to those but I think we've just got to think that this just multiplies the power that the police have. And in a country like China, or even in a country like our own, but with a, you know, a less um, 
respectful governments than than we might currently have. We've got to think about what the long-term implications are here. And Julie, I mean, you have campaigned on civil liberties before. How do you feel about the use of this, you know, kind of very intrusive uh, technology, but that can deliver results that perhaps we might want? Well, soon it will undoubtedly be a film with Tom Cruise starring. Um, you know, and, and I wonder how reliable this is, and I don't think we'll know for another five years, maybe more. I remember the excitement when DNA became reliable enough to solve crimes, cold case crimes, that I've been involved with as an investigative journalist, looking at sex crimes in particular, rapes, murders of women, where men had walked free where they were hiding in plain sight. And then, you know, in one case, I can remember after an assault in a in a pub, a very low-level assault, uh, where he was um, fingerprinted and had his DNA swabbed. 30 years later, we find that he was identified for that crime of a woman who'd been raped and murdered by him. And it was an amazing result. However, we have to look at the implications of this and the way that police forces operate in very under various systems, whether it's you know in the global north, the global south, where police corruption is rife. I suppose it brings to mind for me a, a time I was attacked. I was beaten up in the street um, in Brixton, and this was about thirty years ago, by a man who just randomly attacked me. And I called the police, and they came to my house, and they asked me if I could describe the attacker. And as soon as I described him, they said, oh, black guy, is he? Well, you know, we can go out now and we'll just pull him in. And and I didn't actually pursue the case, not because I'm the most anti-racist white person on the planet, but because I realised that actually they would probably just pull in these black guys that they really wanted to harass anyway for crimes that they suspected them of. And because as far as some of these white coppers were concerned, they all look the same, that old racist trope. Now that, actually, the facial recognition technology would deal with that in some ways if it's reliable. But if not, then it could give powers to police that are similar to those where they stop and search young black men, for example, who are over-criminalised. And, I mean, Peter, so if we think about this issue of racism within the criminal justice system, which is very well covered in this country, in America and and many others. Um, Does facial recognition, does technology enable you, as Julia's saying, could do to actually um, minimise that that kind of human bias? Or are we actually building in some of that human bias by using the technology? Well, it all depends what the founding assumptions are that are used to construct the algorithms which these automated law enforcement systems, um, including facial recognition, um, then operate on. Um, So the technology could magnify human prejudice, and that's what a lot of people are frightened of. But but just... but, but, But... Is that the case, though, when we're talking about facial recognition? So there is an individual who has been identified to be the suspect, let's say, but actually, you know, let's assume there's some evidence behind that person being the suspect. Their face is on the system and then some CCTV, which has facial recognition technology in it, identifies that individual in a crowd concert room and they get to arrest them. How is that biased if it is the right person and technology is helping to arrest them? 
Well, if the um, process by which the kind of named faces are harvested in the first place is biased, then the technology enables the authorities to know where certain suspects are and then to harass them if that's the way they mm -hmm. go about um, that's the mode of policing. And that's often the case in, in, in a lot of areas that you will harass certain people that are seen as troublemakers and wait for them to slip up, mm -hmm. right? So to, to, to think that this has no sinister applications, I think is quite naive. Um, and, and that's Julie before we get to the use of this technology in a predictive way. How do we predict... Um, uh, certain crimes? How do we predict certain patterns of behaviour that then you then assume will result in a crime? And Julie, I just want to bring you in because you were nodding your head quite vociferously mm -hmm. when Peter was talking. So, I mean, you agree with that, that it is a big problem? Well, I think that it can be misused. Look at the amount of wealth some individuals have, not just in China, in Russia, in the UK, in the US, wherever. And I know of cases where men in this case have been stalking women who have previously been in relationships with them. One man who used all of his personal wealth to track a woman to a village in India who'd escaped him almost 30 wow. years earlier. Now, what's to stop people with massive personal wealth? And I sometimes engage with private detectives who use the same methods as some police officers, some high-tech methods, to, to use that facial recognition to track down someone they're harassing. This is a very dangerous crime and it will be used by people with personal wealth in order to pursue their, their violent fantasies or a personal vendetta, not just by law enforcers. And that, that's obviously a huge issue, whether the technology is used by private individuals rather than Indeed. by the state uh, or individual police forces that mm -hmm. at least we assume have some form of check and balance attached to it. But we've run out of time on that underreported. Thank you very much, Peter. Julie, can you tell us about your underreported story? Well, this is from the Republic of Ireland and it's very topical at the moment, but this particular story really hasn't had any traction at all. Um, a young footballer, um, Izzy Akinady, who was in 2010 convicted of taking part in a gang rape of a 14-year-old um, in a house and in the woodlands. It was a terrible, terrible attack. He actually pleaded guilty when the case came to court in 2014. And what the judge said was, and this is quite incredible, I mean, he was he was 16, but way above the age of, of, of criminal responsibility. The judge said that this conviction was punishment enough because this would follow him around and would have a massive impact on his employment opportunities. And he suspended the sentence, a two-year suspended sentence, was handed out to Akinady. Now, this is quite incredible. I'm not a hang'em and flog'em type, but I do believe that we need to use deterrence to address what is effectively a crisis with our um, with our criminal justice system when it comes to sexual assault. The vast, vast, vast majority don't even get reported, let alone end up in a in a conviction. And unless you think the vast majority of women are making up rape, rape allegations, we're talking about a number of men who rape, who walk free. But what the issue is about this is that this young man is a very successful footballer. And this story came to my notice because feminist campaigners in the Republic of Ireland and in the north of the country have now put out a petition saying that the Waterford Football Club that employs this man should actually make a stand 
and not have employed him and certainly not be promoting him as one of their key role models for young men. In fact, last July he received a standing ovation for returning to the pitch after he'd been ill. He's also been given man of the match by one of their key sponsors. And bearing in mind that he is a recently convicted sex offender who has never, ever um, shown any remorse for his crimes or actually talked about how we can prevent rape um, and, and support victims. I think this is an absolute scandal. And I'm really glad that the feminists in the Republic and the North of Ireland are looking at the endemic rape culture that we've seen with the Belfast case where the young men were acquitted, but other cases where it's clear that, that you know, this is about endemic sexual violence. And so, I mean, the, the important, I guess, point here is that, as you said, this is an individual who who has been convicted, who who has admitted guilt. So there's no question about the fact that this mm-hmm. individual has um, been involved in a rape, a very serious sexual assault. But whatever we think about the sentence that was handed down, and you know, it sounds to me woefully inadequate. Um, he has nonetheless served that sentence. So is there not a challenge then by saying that someone who has served the sentence they have been given by the court should not then be able to return to employment in their area of skill or expertise? You know, should the football club not have uh, allowed him to play for them? I'm a person that believes in rehabilitation. The problem is with Akinadi is that he hasn't actually been through a system where he has been encouraged to say anything at all about his offending. We can't be sure what his views are on rape and on the fact that he was given a non-custodial sentence. And this links into the big outcry, the public outcry, about John Warboys, the black cab rapist, um, who, you know, was was about to be released on parole because they had, it turns out, post-legal challenge by the victims, two of his victims, that they had been duped and taken in by John Warboys and he remains in prison. And so this is not about needing somebody to pay for their crimes over and over again. But it's about looking at the difference between Akinadi, who is um, a very successful public figure on a huge salary, and a person who works in B&Q, for example, which would be difficult, bearing in mind that they've all closed down recently. However, it's a bit difficult to actually say that Akinadi has served his time, because he served no time, and also that this isn't going to have massive ramifications in terms of the crisis we have in attitudes amongst young men about rape. He is a role model. Waterford Football Club should actually take a stand. I don't think that this means he shouldn't ever have employment. We need to rehabilitate people, whatever their sentence has been, custodial or not. But really, he's a role model for young men? Nonsense. And so, I mean, Peter, I do want us to make this distinction, though, between um, an individual has uh, committed a crime, an awful crime, they have um, complied with what the court has handed them as a sentence. So, you know, let's set aside this particular case where the sentence may be questionable. Um, how should employers respond? I mean, should should they just take a stand and say, well, I'm, I'm not going to hire someone who's got a, a criminal conviction? I think they've got every right to do that. If, if, if they believe that that person has be- behaved in such a way um, that is contrary to the values of the company, to the reputation of the company, then yes, they should. Um, now, of course, there's a good reason for 
uh, with a lot of um, ex-prisoners to find them employment opportunities mm -hmm. because that does cut the rate of reoffending. But I think that applies more to economic crimes. There's no reason why it's at all relevant to sex crimes. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't think hold that, on, that, hold on a minute, that just though, because, doesn't apply. Because are we saying then that anyone who's committed a sexual crime, an assault, a rape, um, shouldn't be able, shouldn't be given a second chance? So that individual, I completely understand Julie's point about demonstrating remorse, but if the court doesn't require that and that person serves their sentence and comes out, are we saying they should never be able to work again? I don't think that's a, that's not a legal issue. That's, that's No, for, it's an ethical issue. What is your view on it as an ethical issue? It would depend very much on the case. Look, if there was someone who committed some sort of assault um, and uh, was genuinely remorseful, had made um, genuine attempts to make amends, um, there might be a case where an employer would choose to be part of that person's redemption. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's absolutely no reason why there should be any ethical or legal or moral pressure on, on an employer to do that. Well, and also, you know, I'm a journalist. I have a good career. Um, if I decided to beat you both up during this podcast, I would imagine that I'd probably end up, if I'm lucky, stacking shelves in Tesco's. So it's also an issue about the fact that he is hailed as a great role model on a massive salary. Quite frankly, a convicted sex offender who took part in a very serious gang rape. His victim, by the way, um, has been suicidal, has lost contact with her family because of this and has had serious mental health issues. Now, I don't believe in an eye for an eye or that kind of, of kind of punishment for the sake of punishment. But a massive glowing career in, in a huge football club? No way. And it is fascinating. I, mean, I read um, a couple of articles on this um, today and it is amazing that certain big newspapers in Ireland don't seem to be including any F reference to right. to the past of this individual. Absolutely. And of course, you know, here in, in, in Britain, we did report on the case where the young men were acquitted uh, in Belfast, where the misogyny and rape culture that we saw that was endemic surrounding that case and the behaviour of those young men was horrific. And we've never seen, and all my decades as a feminist campaigner, I've never seen such a quick and vibrant response from feminists and others and men in Belfast, which is effectively a small town, and in Dublin, where thousands upon thousands of women and men came out to protest what is effectively rape culture. And this Akinedi case is adding to it. Thank you. OK, we're going to have to move on um, to do what I think is the best part of the podcast, the heroes and the villains. Uh, Peter, can I start with you? You're going to give us a hero of the week. Yes. Um, now, this isn't someone I particularly like or identify with in any way. Um, and, and yet he's your hero. And he is this week. Um, it's Edward Heath. Um, obviously, 50 years ago, there was the Rivers of Blood speech. And there's been a particular um, uh, controversy over the BBC um, uh, having this speech read out uh, with lots of people commenting on it. Um, and there's been all sorts of controversy over that. Um, what 
isn't remarked so much upon is what happened to Enoch Powell after he gave that speech. And that was the fact that Edward Heath, then leader of the opposition, leader of the Conservative Party, sacked Enoch Powell from um, the government. Now, these days, if it, it, that might not seem that remarkable. Someone who says something outrageous uh, would probably get sacked. Um, and there's been various cases of that. Um, but this was 50 years ago. The public support for what Enoch Powell said was overwhelming. Uh, the, the polling data is, is just remarkable. So um, Edward Heath, who I disagree with on all sorts of things from, from Europe uh, and, 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 and his attitude to Margaret Thatcher and his, his endless sulks, um, on this occasion, he behaved, acted with real courage. Um, he paid for it, um, ultimately, in 1974, when he lost power, um, when Enoch Powell endorsed a vote for Labour. Um, and, um, and yet he did something which I believe helped clean out politics for a very long time. I think Enoch Powell's speech stopped us having a honest um, debate about um, about mass immigration for a very long time. Um, but I think, say compared to France, where the Le Pen legacy has never really gone away, uh, because of what Edward Heath did, that sort of virus was pushed out of the political mainstream. And I think he deserves our thanks for that, looking back. OK. Um, you mentioned, Peter, there that you... Uh, you thought it was remarkable that he did that because it was 50 years ago. And yet, and and sort of suggested that politicians today would also do the same. Now, they, they might have done the same in that particular instance. But, I mean, I think there would be many who'd argue that our politicians today lack a moral backbone and actually don't act quickly to um, get rid of people who have done things that, quite frankly, you know, should mean they shouldn't hold public office. Well, they do in some cases. If it goes with the flow of fashionable opinion, they will act, right? Um, however, if we're talking about opposition leaders acting courageously to remove bigotry from their parties, um, mm. I think Edward Heath did rather better than some people I could mention today. He did better than Corbyn with Livingstone, for example. Indeed. Or indeed a whole array of people who, mm -hmm. you know, Corbyn probably should be acting against. I mean, Julie, just on this, I mean, one example in, I guess, recent times, although this is, this is another Corbyn example, um, but was Sarah Champion being forced to resign? I mean, it's sort of like a firing, you know, if you don't have a choice in your yes. resignation. Um, but interestingly there, she was forced to resign for stating something which was effectively a truth which the, the in the situation of um grooming so mm -hmm. in, in particular grooming white girls that mm -hmm. there was an, a particular mo around british pakistani men targeting white girls and yet she was forced to resign because of that well this is an issue that's very close to my heart in fact i was the very first journalist to expose this on a national level and wrote about the grooming gangs that were from a particular community and demographic that had in fact been dealing with heroin these were criminal elements 
um, who were from Muslim Pakistani backgrounds. They weren't doing it because they were Pakistani, clearly. They were doing it because they were criminals. And the police definitely didn't want, quote, unquote, a race riot on their hands. They told me this. The chief constable of West Yorkshire at the time told me this when I was investigating it in 2004. So... Yes, this is an issue and it's possible to report this without being in any way racist or suggesting that this is something to do with the Pakistani community rather than men who pimp and rape girls. But, but Corbyn's but can, response to it... Well, his, he, he is an absolute disgrace. I mean, as a lifelong Labour voter, I'm very, very clear on this. The man is abominable. And, you know, I, I just... I, for the first time ever, I've been considering not voting Labour, but where on earth do you go? However, I'm sure your listeners will have plenty of suggestions. However... <laughs> on the postcard, <laughs> please. I, I think that with, with, with Sarah Champion, this was terrible because what she was punished for wasn't saying what we knew to be true. And in fact, we're pulling the rug from under the fascists' feet by being the white liberals and others who say, yes, this is a thing, let's deal with it. The reason why she was forced to resign was because she said these things to the Sun newspaper and wrote in the Sun newspaper. Now, we can all criticise the Sun newspaper. I'm a great critic of it. However, I grew up with that newspaper in a working-class northeastern household. And I know for a fact that Corbyn and his elite band of posh Stalinists that surround him are snobs about working-class people reading the sun. They are anti-working class, and it's no wonder that people actually voted Brexit in the area where I'm from, despite the fact that I disapprove of that, because they actually can't stand these posh boys telling them what to do. So that's what happened to Sarah Champion. Let's be clear, it was snobbery, and it was to play to the gallery of those that are very minded of the sun being, for example, boycotted or no-platformed or whatever in Merseyside. I mean, Peter, there was, though, nonetheless, I mean, if there was an element of the Sun, a large element potentially of it being the Sun newspaper, we all know the history there. Um, nonetheless, there was clearly an issue here around Corbyn presumably feeling he had to do something for a particular part of his base. And, and that comes back to the question of taking a moral stance and being able to call out really difficult, uncomfortable truths. Yeah, and he went with the... The, the path of least resistance, right? The, the people that can get to him most directly wanted Sarah Champion gone. And so that's that's what happens. Um, tr true courage, when it comes to getting rid of someone, sacking someone, calling someone out, is when you've genuinely got skin in the game and that you'll pay a price for mm. it, right? Yeah. And, um, and that's what I really want to see from politicians, that's the kind of people I see as worthy of leadership, worthy of the, the privilege of, of running a country, is that genuine courage. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem to, to be a particularly um, prominent feature mm. of public life these days, sadly. Well, there we go. Edward Heath, our hero of the week. Um, Julie, your villain of the week, please. Well, he's a man we know as Carl, with a K. And I actually shared the Victoria Derbyshire uh, slot uh, yesterday with him about brothels and whether the police should turn a blind eye, whether they should be legalised. The usual conversation we've been having for decades, despite the evidence from Holland and Germany and Nevada in the US, that legalised brothels make things worse for the women and better for the pimps. So the issue about Carl is, and why he's my villain, is he's a pimp, 
He runs brothels. He wouldn't call himself a pimp. He'd call himself a businessman, a brothel owner. And he sells women. He rents the inside of their bodies, effectively. Let's get absolutely clear about this. He rents orifices of women to be penetrated by strangers several times a day for money. For him, he takes 30% from the women. Now, whatever you think about whether women choose this or whether it's horrendous or whatever... Carl is campaigning to decriminalise these brothels and he's saying that he believes that the police should turn a blind eye. What a surprise. He was a former police detective. He's now a brothel owner and he's campaigning and speaking out on national media, promoting a way of running prostitution that is the worst for the women, is less likely for the women to get out from, is more likely that the men abuse the women, refuse to wear condoms, all of the rest of it, and he's doing it for personal financial gain. If he... I mean, you say there that, that this is the kind of worst form of uh, prostitution for women, um, but others would argue that actually having... A, an environment which isn't standing on the street, isn't being vulnerable to getting in a car and not knowing who the hell it is you've just got in a car with. You know, is it is there not an argument to be made that actually a brothel could be the safest place for women who are sex workers? Definitely that argument can be made, has been made, and it's actually been tried and tested in a number of countries and states. It's failed. Look, I've just done extensive, extensive research on the global sex trade where I covered 168,000 miles, did 250 interviews, went into brothels legal, decriminalised, illegal, spoke to women in prostitution and who'd got out of prostitution. I interviewed the punters, the pimps, everybody involved in this trade. And I didn't come into this with, with a clean slate. I've campaigned against the normalisation of the sex trade from a human rights perspective, not a pearl-clutching, moralistic, anti-sex, fainting Victorian lady perspective. And what I learned, and particularly from the 50 sex trade survivors that I spent time with and interviewed for the book, is that legalisation gives men more confidence to demand what they wish. It means that although they are decriminalised, the women themselves, which I have campaigned for, of course women selling sex should never be arrested. But that the safety is impossible in prostitution. A sex trade survivor friend of mine said only yesterday in a public meeting that when she was on the streets, she was safer because she could see the man, she could smell him, she could see if there was booze on his breath, how he was behaving. She was out in the open where people can hear your screams. Also, if I can get a little bit graphic, it's a two to three minute bone shaker, right? This is what we're talking about. When you're in a brothel, you don't know who that man is until that door opens. You're inside a brothel. The security, for want of a better word, it's laughable, is controlled by the pimp, the brothel owner, the receptionist. And that man has half an hour or an hour. And imagine what he can do in that time. So it's nonsense, actually, that the street is safer. And all decriminalisation does is turn pimps into businessmen, punters into clients or customers, and the women into a merchandise where, as another friend who was in prostitution said to me, whenever she's told it's better than working in McDonald's, and she's always told this by people who've never actually had sex with strangers for money, what she says is, yeah, but at least in McDonald's, you're not the meat. In prostitution, you are the meat. And I want, I want to bring Peter in in a second, but do you, Julie, think that a woman ever has a right 
to sell sex? This is the wrong question, with all due respect. I'm not here to say what right a woman has to sell sex or not. I'm here to say there is no human inherent right for a man to buy sex. Feminists but if a man can't buy sex, then a woman can't sell it. Well, the point is that this is a demand-driven trade. And it's one that you can't take the criminal elements or the violence or abuse out of. Men don't have a right to buy sex. Disabled men in wheelchairs or returning war veterans who are used as the human shield for other punters, where people say, but what about disabled men? Do you know what, guys? Get a real date. Otherwise... You know, what you're saying is we should have meals on wheels, but women delivered instead of the food. And I know several disabled people who are very, very upset by the suggestion that they can't get a real date or that they have a right to one-sided sexual pleasure where the woman isn't consenting, because obviously money wouldn't have to change hands if there's no consent. So I will not argue with women in the sex trade who say I have a right. That isn't my place. This isn't about this false right of a woman to be prostituted. It's about denying the right for men to pay for sex when nothing's going to happen. They're not going to simultaneously combust. Peter, I mean, there is a quite vocal strain of feminism, um, perhaps call it kind of modern feminism, if, if you like, that is arguing that women should be able to sell their body. And, and maybe that's not as far as prostitution, but, you know, stripping, um, all sorts of, of um, you know, ways in which women use their body rather than quotes their mind uh, to make money. Um, is there not a legitimate case that if something can be made, made safe and it is a genuine choice that actually we shouldn't be getting in the way of that? Um, well, first of all, I'd like everyone to stop using the phrase um, a woman selling her body. Um, you know, she is their body, mind and soul. It is a person being sold. You can't disassemble someone and only sell the bits that won't be profoundly damaged, right? So I think let's make that clear for a start. Um, as for the fact that could there be some women who are doing this, you know, with 100% uncompromised agency? Well, maybe. You know, there might be some people that can drive 100 miles an hour on a motorway without being in any way unsafe. We have rules because of the overall picture. And right? to protect the vulnerable, ultimately. Yes. And by the way, I think, you know, the, um, you know, when you have, even if you have a well-regulated brothel, I don't know if there's any examples of that anywhere in the world, that can just serve as a shield for a penumbra of unregulated or downright criminal activities. And in a sort of parallel issue of drugs legalisation, we, we've seen how in America with the opioid ep epidemic, we've seen the completely legal regulated sale of medical opioids actually hugely benefiting the illegal trade, which, and these things are symbiotic, right? It's not one displacing the other. One feeds the other. And Julie, as a final comment, uh, as unfortunately we are running out of time, I am particularly struck that, quotes Carl, uh, was a former police officer who presumably saw the damage of the other side. He will have seen the damage of the other side. He clearly would have taken what he would call a pragmatic approach. In other words, not ever 
police those brothels unless there was some kind of complaint from the public. And yet I've been in these brothels and I've seen what goes on. And women don't have to be trafficked or underage to be abused. And it's police officers' job to look out for preventing crime and for also supporting the victims of crime. Carl clearly has chosen a new path. And Carl also is still benefiting from his anonymity and it'd be interesting to know whether he would want to be publicly revealed I given his job. I would talk to him time. Well, there we go. An offer out there, Carl. Come and debate Julie. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Julie and Peter, for a fantastic um, and really fascinating uh, discussion on our underreported stories and our villains and heroes. Um, thank you to listening. And please do subscribe if you haven't already. Unheard has a variety of different podcasts. You can subscribe to them on iTunes, whatever the platform is that you use. Aisha will be back next week. I've been Charlie Pickles. Thank you so much for listening to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. Thank you.